Hi, this is Heidi, and this is Parent Town, a podcast where we explore stories of parenting in hopes that they can connect us and maybe make the world a little easier to understand. Hey, everyone, welcome to Parent Town. This is Heidi. In this episode, I get to chat with author, educator, and fellow podcaster, Mike Huber. Mike is an expert in this area of encouraging rough and tumble play with kids and has a new book out on the subject. This was one of those interviews that really had me reanalyzing my own biases afterwards, and I'm happy that I did. Here is his story. Mike, thank you for being here. Uh, Your history of work is so impressive in this world of early childhood contributions and writing. And I know that you have a number of books that are available on Redleaf Press, but the one that I would like to chat with you more about is your newest one, Embracing Rough and Tumble Play, Teaching with the Body in in mind. Mind. Yeah. So I think when we're talking about this topic, I am truly interested in what sparked your interest? Because you have like 25 years of teaching under your belt, and you're also a parent. And so you're, you've been in this world for so long. Like, What made you think this is the kind of book that we need? Like, I don't see this yeah. out there, and I'm going to write it. Well, for me, it really came from teaching a classroom. And I never want to say that gender determines how you act and stuff. But at the same time, it was a classroom. I had 10 kids with just me. And one year it was eight boys and two girls. And it was a lot of boisterous mm-hmm. kids. And I was finding myself after, at the time, I don't know, 15 years of teaching, having a hard time keeping it together and playing it cool, not getting sure. upset. Uh, and I don't get upset very easily, but it was really stressful. And after that year, I th- decided I had to learn more about it. And Hmm. I was at the annual conference for the National Association for the Education of Young Children, and Michelle Tannock was speaking. And she is one of the few people who does research on rough and tumble play. And so I went to see her, and she talked about rough and tumble play and all the benefits of it and how most classrooms are not set up to actually Mm -hmm. allow for it. And it just really opened my eyes, and I thought, I need to learn more about this. And at the same time, I was learning more about gender identity, gender expression in general, not just with young children, Mm -hmm. but with people of all ages. And I think that combination, I just started looking more and more into it. Then Francis Carlson had a book called Big Body Play that's Mm -hmm. addressed towards teachers, but had some great information. And I soon became friends with Francis with a group that she was a moderator for. And then I was actually at... Rusty Steeler, I believe, is his name. We'll have to look it up. Okay. <laughs> um, he's created a adventure playground in Ithaca, New York, called Anarchy Zone. And okay. He was speaking at another conference, NACI conference. Okay. And there were like 500 people at this presentation, and some woman asked, "Like, is there just a book that just tells me? Like, I get that it's good for kids, but is there a book that just tells me how to do it?" Right. And of the 500 people, like, because Rusty was like, um, can't think of one. Does anyone know one? And nobody knows one. And so after that, I went up to him and introduced myself and said, oh, I'm actually writing a book about how to do this. Wow. And he's like, oh, that's great. We should 
stay in touch because I'm writing a book. It would be great to have some of your experience. And then I left there and went down to the booth for Red Leaf. Mm -hmm. And I'd already done picture books with them. So I had a relationship with them. But I told the editor, like, I know what book I have to write next. Mm -hmm. And I told her. She's like, oh. And so meanwhile, I was already training, doing some trainings about rough and tumble play. I'd already delved into the research part. Sure. But the idea of writing the book was more, I do this a lot, where I kind of say something. And somehow, once I say it to someone else, then I have to actually do it. Right. (laughs) So... But she was like, oh, well, let's write, write up a proposal. We should do this. And she saw me speak and saw how people were interested and mm-hmm. asked a lot of questions. Kind of went in that order. Okay. And then oddly enough, just a few months ago. So that was like back in 2000, end of 2015, I think. Okay. And then Rusty got a hold of me in January of this year, 2018, and just said, oh, I'm working on the chapter in Rough and Tumble Play. Here's some questions I have for you. Wow. So by then, he had already read my book and I actually was... An expert on it. But yeah. when I first told him, I was learning about it, but it kind of sneaks up on you becoming mm-hmm. an expert in something. Sure. <laughs> um, and the other thing that happened, yeah. I have to say, is that there's a teacher here. He's retired now, but Tom Bedard mm-hmm. was an ECFE teacher. Mm-hmm. I've heard of Tom. Yeah. I think and we've all heard of Tom. Yes. <laughs> you should have him on your show I someday. Should. He's yeah. legendary. Yeah. But he and I wrote a proposal for a conference that got rejected, but we decided, well, we should just get together once a month and talk about this type of stuff, mm-hmm. not just rough and tumble, but kind of letting kids explore more right. and things. So we started meeting once a month and we each kind of invited people. And Joey Schoen and Ross Thompson were two people that would come too. And after okay. a while, I thought... Maybe we could do a podcast. Right. And so I let's talk if, more about that. Yeah. Because I would love you to share. Sure. So I knew if I was going to do a podcast by myself, I would never get enough content because I had a blog going for a while and right. I couldn't get content going. And then when I started writing the book, suddenly every week I had to brainstorm something for mm-hmm. the book. So mm-hmm. then I was blogging. Yes. So when I was most busy, I was also blogging. Okay. Which is the way it works, I think. What's the name of your podcast again? So the podcast is called Teaching with the Body and Mind. Mm-hmm. And so I said, why don't we do that? And we'll each come up with an episode. And we decided to make them short, like Mm -hmm. 10 to 15 minutes is our goal. Right. But they come out weekly. Yes. So I think we could do 10 minutes every week. And so we actually get together and each come up with one idea. So we record four at a time. So we get together once a month. Yeah, it was much easier not having to have all the ideas. And I usually show up with a vague idea of what I'm going to talk about and ramble. Okay. And Tom comes up with this sheet with like references to certain (laughs) books and specific things he wants to cover. It can all work together. Everyone has different ways they do it. Yeah. Okay. Can people find you on um, like iTunes and Stitcher? Yep. Yeah. So Teaching with the Body and Mind is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, I'm sure other ones. Okay. Okay. And it's... You can also find us through playvolutionhq.com. Okay, awesome. Okay. And it has a bunch of other podcasts that are kind of cool, too. In your years of all of this teaching, what have you seen that has sort of evolved right. in this idea of boisterous play and how you see parents reacting to it differently? Right. Well, part of it's my own evolution, because I have yeah. to say, when I had that class of boisterous kids... yeah. And I was going crazy. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how much I didn't allow it. Mm. Even though, like, I think I would say that I allowed it, and I would just tell them to wait till we got outside. Mm. And now, you know, my usual phrase for that is, that would be like telling, you know, a grown-up 
you can have your coffee, but just wait till noon. Sure. Right? Because, you <laughs> yeah. know, boisterous play is what wakes kids up. Mm. And to ha- tell them to wait till they get outside, and especially the kids who are having the hardest time, mm-hmm. the kids who need to move the most are the ones we tell that to the most. Mm-hmm. And to me, it just seems like you're just stressing yourself out as a teacher mm-hmm. and as a parent, too, I would mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Parents, there's some other things I can talk about in a minute, but... As a teacher, I had another class with the same makeup, you know, the eight mm-hmm. boys, two girls, uh, a few years later. And then at that point, I allowed it. We had pillow fights every day. Awesome. Just sort of after lunch, you could read a book, you could color, or you could, um, we call them throwing stars because they're star-shaped pillows. Okay. But, you know, you could have a pillow fight. So you you didn't have to, but the kids who needed to have could the have the fight. opportunity. And they didn't feel shamed. Right. And they didn't feel like, I'm going to get in trouble. Right. Or and we had a mat thing. out during free play so the kids could roughhouse. And that was the most fun year. You know, it was, it was, it was actually the photos yeah. in my book. A lot yeah. of them are from that year. And it was such a great year. And yeah. I'm thinking, if I would have been the teacher I was a few years ago, I would have been going crazy again. Yeah. And instead, it was just fun. So it's a shift in your mind. Yeah. And it was definitely, like, probably a shift for the kids. But how, you know, like, I just look at my own kids and, like, the lack of recess I think that they get. Yeah. And, like, some of the teachers are so amazing, though, where it's, like, on nice days, there's just, I'm sure they're breaking all the rules. Right, but they're right. just, like, be outside. And I appreciate that as a parent because... I know how it's such a necessity um, for them because classrooms are not set up. Yeah. It's one of those things that this is the thing that I think is changing slowly. Okay. But I think parents have more power than they know. Yes. Because if you ask principals, and actually Michelle Tannock has done some research on this. She did research on, she asked the kids what they thought of rough and tumble play. Okay. She asked parents and she asked the teachers. Hmm. And the teachers said that they were okay with it, but they knew the parents weren't. So they wouldn't allow it. Hmm. The parents said, well, we do allow it at home, but we don't let the teachers know because we know they're not okay with it. And the kids knew, oh, we do it at home, but we don't tell the teachers because they don't. Everybody kind of knows it's good, but everybody's sort right. of like being a, like a little too gentle with the other right. party. And, okay. and it's true that, you know, not everyone has that feeling, sure. certainly. And the hardest part is that you have one parent who's going to complain that, you know, my child twisted their ankle they were running around or sure. whatever. And then yeah. suddenly the school is going to create a policy around that. Right, exactly. Um, and that's one of the biggest problems is that injuries will happen mm-hmm. regardless of whether you allow rough and tumble play. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to get rid of injuries by allowing it. Mm-hmm. But you can't just make rules based on one person's injury. You right. look at, okay, so we had a thousand kids at this school and we had how many sprained ankles, how mm-hmm. many broken bones over the year. Mm-hmm. And what's acceptable? So what are the trends? Not this one kid, you know, had an injury, therefore we don't allow this. So tell me about, like, now that we're kind of on this on this topic, what do you see with your research and your expertise? What is this benefit right. of, of boisterous play? Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, in terms of elementary school, there's actually research being done in Texas. And I'm going to have to look up the name That's of okay. the person who, who does this. But she has convinced a school to have half the class do it the way they do in Finland, right? So every Mm. 40 minutes, you do instruction for 40 minutes, and then you have 10 minutes of recess in 40 minutes, 10 minutes. And they've been doing, I think, two years, maybe three. And it's been slowly, I think it started with kindergarten. Now they're doing kindergarten first, then kindergarten first, second. Okay. Until they're doing the whole school. And what she's finding is some of the research she knew, she expected to have. The kids actually cover more in class. Yeah. 
with less instruction time. They have more energy. They are sick less. But the one she didn't expect was the nurses report less injuries, like broken bones, less broken bones, less sprained ankles. Wow. And they're moving around more. Do you think it's just because they're being able to sort of control impulses, assess risk? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it myself. And I've no research to back this up, but I'm going to say it anyways, that I think the more you move around, the more you figure out what your body can do. And especially I look at playgrounds. So that's one thing that changed since I started teaching is more and more playgrounds got taken out and these new things come in and they take up a lot of space. I've seen childcare centers that are mostly a climber. I think there's a commercial interest, right? Oh, you you need these things because... I found that I stopped taking kids. So my classroom was just two blocks away from an elementary school. And we would often take the kids to the park at the elementary school. There was a playground there. And the last few years, I would walk by the playground part and go to this area where it was just a big hill and trees. And the kids would play there for hours without very much conflict. Mm -hmm. They could always find things to do because... What happens, these climbers that have been built the last 20, 25 years, there's just like stairs and ladders. Yeah. And you go to these pathways that are like fences on either side, so you can't climb over. <laughs> and so it tells you how to move, it right? And then there's slides yeah. and the other end. And so one, then you often have grown ups saying you can't go up a slide. Mm-hmm. So now you can only go up the stairs or the ladder and then down the slide. Yeah. And so all the kids, it's like you're supposed to just go through this and it's supposed to be fun. <laughs> Aren't you having fun, you guys? And what kids usually do is they start pretending, oh, this is my spaceship yeah. or this is my whatever yeah. pirate ship. They'll, they'll find places to like sit down mm-hmm. and be things. But then other kids are trying to go up the stairs and over to the slide and the other kids are in the way. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, I see a lot of conflict happening sure. that way. Yeah. And if you go to trees and bushes and things, kids are, oh, this is the spaceship. And the kids who want to run around, that's fine. Yeah. You know, and yes. they find something else to do. And there's nothing particularly spaceship-like about the bushes, so they can right. go to this log and yeah. make that their pirate ship. But when it's just a climber, you're kind of stuck, and mm-hmm. it's all it is is these pathways that you're supposed to follow. Yeah. And no kid wants to do that for very long. I can see where you're going with this, too. And also this idea of really developing not only their imagination, but like negotiation with each other, trying to figure this out and not being told, this is how you're having fun today. It's like giving a kid a cardboard box instead of like all these fancy toys, which as a mom, like I've seen more fun with just, you know, a cardboard box and like some scotch tape than like all the the fanciest toys in the world. I'd like to take what we were talking about and then also talk about how developing this, you know, love for boisterous play is great in theory. And how do we as parents, those of us especially who sort of grew up with this idea of right. parents who I had parents who were like very much about don't climb up the slide. Right. So I was always kind of assessing yeah. and always kind of on the side, like, should I go in? Should I not? And I see my own children doing that. So if you could have a room full of parents who are interested right. in like, what kind of advice would you give like yeah. a room full of parents? Well, first of all, I think that our society, we often use the word risk. Mm. And I often talk about it that way because that's the language of what people are used to talking about it. Mm-hmm. But I've been trying to use the word um, courageousness mm. instead. Oh, I like that a lot better. <laughs> because how do you assess a situation to be courageous or adventurous or yeah. whatever? And look at it on the positive side. And it's not to say that there aren't risks or there aren't the potential for injury, but I think what we've done is we've kind of taken risk and hazard and made it the same thing. Mm, mm-hmm. So we will worry about 
as a parent, you take your child to a childcare center or at school, and you're worried that they're going to come home with a scratch on them. Mm. And then you put them in your car and drive home. And the most dangerous thing the child did that day was ride in a car, <laughs> right? Riding in a car is the most dangerous thing, but that's something as a society we've accepted mm-hmm. that sometimes there's going to be car accidents. Children are going to die in car accidents. And somehow we've accepted that's okay. Mm-hmm. But if a child gets a scratch mm-hmm. by going into the bushes Mm-hmm. You know, whoa, they yeah. could have poked their eye out. Sure. You know, and so I think we've somehow lost a little bit of yeah. that sense of what is actually acceptable. Yes. And what are we doing to kids? His name John Gray is definitely a believer that there's a lot more cases of anxiety in children nowadays. Mm-hmm. And he sort of shows, I mean, this is one of those things. There's no causation proved, but as we step in as parents more as a society, we've also had an increase in anxiety. Mm -hmm. I think there's probably something to do with it. And and to me, like, even if it's not the cause, we can Mm -hmm. still step back. Right. What it means in a practical level as a parent is when you see your child doing something and your initial impulse is like, "Uh uh-oh. Yes. um, You just go closer. Mm. And assess it better. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I see teachers tell kids from across the playground, don't do that or stop. If they went closer, they could see what's going on. What's really going on. Because then once you see it, you can decide, is it really dangerous? And then you can talk to the child unless they're in immediate danger. Mm -hmm. And immediate danger is something hanging upside down from Mm -hmm. a height, Mm -hmm. you know, more than a few inches. Yeah. Depending, I work with young children, so that's, you have to be older to be able to do that. You have to be, you know, seven or eight probably, but you know your own kid. If it's your own kid, do they do this Mm -hmm. often? Can they hang upside down? If they start to fall, do they know how to flip over so at least they're hitting their knees and not their right and hopefully their feet <laughs> and it's such in our own mind isn't it as parents it's such my own issue yeah i can just tell that they're right, craving right. that and then i just have to be better about checking in with yeah. myself like heidi why are you and, triggered by this and i think so for me as a teacher maybe i'll speak to it this way okay. and then talk about his parenting so as i was doing this research and things there's this example where we were at a assisted living facility and we were outdoors we we're somebody was grilling, you know, we're going to have lunch with the residents. Mm -hmm. And so we were doing different games and things. And a few kids went over to this drainage ditch and it was dry, you know, but they're by, you know, the rocks going down maybe three feet and the kids were kind of walking down them. Yeah. And the person nearby said, is this okay? And my initial teacher reaction was like, no, they're walking on rocks, you know, (laughs) like that's dangerous. And I just said, well, let me go closer. Yeah. So I went close and I watched them. And they were going at a slower speed as they felt. And it was mm-hmm. the thing of it's uneven. Yeah. So they have to pay attention. And some kids would start to speed up. And I just said something about, oh, the faster you go, the harder it is to stay up. Something like that. And so some kids slowed down and some kids didn't. Mm-hmm. But they all kind of did it. And I just watched them do it for five minutes. And then they got bored and went somewhere else. But for me, it really increased my confidence in those kids. Mm-hmm. Because I would have just stopped them and why? And, you know, you can buy these plastic things called stepping stones mm-hmm. that help with that same sense of balance mm-hmm. and all that, that walking on actual stones do. Mm-hmm. But real stone is uneven, mm-hmm. but you also grip it better because mm-hmm. the plastic ones actually can slip on a lot easier. Mm. Or they like, they slide out because they're, they're light, they're right. made of plastic. Yeah. So it's kind of funny because I think they're actually safer in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and you learn how to walk on uneven surfaces and you learn how to pay attention and you Mm -hmm. learn how to slow down when you need to Mm -hmm. 
And those are all important things. Mm-hmm. If a kid only walks on even surfaces, they don't realize there are some times when you have to slow down. Yes. And check when, yourself and check your body. And yeah. like what you were talking about earlier is like getting to know how your own body works and what it's capable of and maybe realizing you're capable of more than you think you right. are and to feed that empowerment in children. I, I mean, that's a win-win for everybody yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Do you feel like the way that kids, like I'm just thinking back, you had some case studies about how not only is it good for them kind of assessing their themselves and each other, but talking to each other right? and noticing each other, and especially children who might not be able to sort of recognize emotions in other kids, yeah, yeah. how important you know that play is and to assess the other person and to talk to them. And it is about, that's kind of consent as well, right? you know, and learning that oh, you're crying. Maybe we need to back off a little or you're cringing or this is too too much. So I don't know. I just feel like that's kind of a life lesson too, is to be able to be aware of others around you and how how your actions are affecting that and be able to kind of work through that. Yeah. And I think for parents, it's really important to know because what happens is when kids roughhouse, they Mm -hmm. learn to read each other's signals. So a lot of it's nonverbal and Mm -hmm. then some of it's verbal. And some of it you do have to teach. And sometimes they learn it from older kids. Sometimes mm-hmm. they learn it from a different adult than yourself. But right. they have to learn that when you say stop, when anybody says stop, everybody stops. And then check in. And this is when they have to learn from somebody. But I try to teach it this way of saying, are you okay? Mm-hmm. Is there anything I can do to help? You don't have to be the one responsible to ask those questions. That's the other thing. Because a lot mm-hmm. of times kids at first feel sort of guilty or shameful, like that they were the one who caused this. Mm-hmm. Or they have to prove that they were not the one. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And if you just, if your focus is more on, oh, we're not worried about who did anything, but right now they're crying. So what we can do is ask, are you okay? So if you're roughhousing with someone and someone gets hurt, it doesn't matter who got hurt. And Mm -hmm. I think too often, even when we try not to, kids know that you're looking for who to blame. Sure. And, And that's the thing. When kids are roughhousing, one person gets hurt. It shouldn't be, you hurt him. Mm. It's much more about, oh no, he's hurt Mm -hmm. or she's hurt. Like focus on the child that Mm -hmm. got hurt, not on the person who did it and say, what we can ask is, are you okay? Is there anything I can do to help? Yeah. And you just ask those questions over and over and you as the adult can be the one to model it at first. Yes. And and they'll say, oh, you're not the one who hurt them either. Yeah. Then you can also let them know. You can ask too. Yeah. And so they learn to one, keep track of others. And then even if they're not even in the game, they can still ask. Yeah. But then when kids are playing that way, playing rough together, you can also, well, make sure they know when someone says stop, you stop. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have that verbal consent. But also when kids know each other well and they're friends, one kid might, you know, shove the other kid. Right. And they have this agreement ahead of time that, yeah, that's how we interact. That's how yeah. we say hello. Yeah. But you'll see those kids often, like once in a while, it'll be like, the kid will give a look like, oh, I'm not. Not ready for that, that today. Yeah. And the other kid, they're usually in tune with each other and the other child will stop. Yes. Or they'll smile and push the yeah. other kid back, right? So yeah. they, but they learn this nonverbal consent yes. too. And I think that's an important skill. Do you feel like, because <laughs> I just think like we are so, we can be so judgy of oh, like yeah. as adults of those kids who are the more physical ones, but who, who, but there's an understanding and how, you know, you like, as a parent, you see those kids at the playground and you're automatically thinking, where are the parents? Right, right. What's going on with these kids? Like, don't stay away from those kids. They're rambunctious. Right, You know, you can get hurt. When it's just kind of getting our heads around this sort of uh, immediate 
right. idea of what those kids are about. That that's bad. Those kids get well, a bad and I reputation. Think part of it too is that we have to watch kids because I don't want to encourage helicopter parenting. But at the same time, when something's happening, you want to say something. Mm. You should observe more. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. Is we need to observe longer before we say anything. I love your idea. What you said. Move closer. Yeah, move closer. Because what happens is there are kids who don't read nonverbal cues or have found that the only way they can get a reaction is by going against when a kid says stop, Mm. they keep doing it, Mm -hmm. right? And that's usually slightly older. I mean, because I always think early childhood, but elementary school kids, some may have learned that the only way they can get a reaction Mm -hmm. is to do that. Mm -hmm. Especially with younger children, if they have more chance to play this way early, you can find the kids who aren't reading verbal cues. Mm Because what happens is the kids who don't read verbal cues and end up doing too much, pushing kids too hard, and they're often the kids who don't know their own bodies well enough, knock over block buildings without trying to, but they walk by and they knock it down. sure. Other kids start avoiding them. Mm. They won't play with them. Mm -hmm. And those kids tend to get isolated. So the only way they know how to interact is to sort of do more what can eventually become bullying behaviors. Sure. Right? Because they know, oh, well, I can do this. And then when they say stop, I just don't stop. Right. That that way I'm interacting with them. I'm still interacting. I'm still getting attention. But if you teach them early on of with young children where they're like, oh, look at the way their face is now. They don't like it anymore. And Mm -hmm. you teach them how to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. They're more likely to be able to play with that child. Mm -hmm. And if they're successful playing with children, then they'll be playing with kids more often. They don't have to resort to those behaviors. So when we see that physical play at a playground, we don't know the other kid. Mm -hmm. We know that some of those kids are those kids who haven't learned to play. Yes. And so we might say something, but we want to be careful because it might be a kid who's really good at it. Yeah. Who's really showing your kid how to be a little more adventurous. Yes. I was very hesitant with physical things as a kid, but my... Older brother and older sister were both very rambunctious. Okay. <laughs> so uh, just I talked to my mom recently where she said, it's so interesting that you write these books because I never thought you were really into that play. You just did it because Tom did it. Yeah. And it was kind of true that I kind of followed my brother, but I never would have taken physical chances without sure. him too. Right. You know what I mean? So, but we did play differently. Yes. And that's okay. So it's just that way of just kind of learning. Yeah. What you can do. And so sometimes you want those kids, if your child's more hesitant, they need to have somebody who's a little more adventurous. Right. Or they might not do anything ever. (laughs) So I know with my own child, in some ways, they take a lot of, I don't want to say risks, but they're 14 and they bike to the coffee shop, you know, half a mile away. Um, They text me when they get there. They Mm -hmm. text me. If they stay longer than an hour, they text me every hour. And then when they leave, they text Mm -hmm. me again. Mm -hmm. But they go out on their own. Mm Mm-hmm. And and they've been doing it since, I don't know, 12 and a half, whatever. Mm-hmm. And for some parents in this day and age, I mean, you know, when I was growing up, that wouldn't have been considered weird. But yeah. um, in this day and age, that's not done as often, especially in a city, I guess. Right. But I think it's important. But then there's some things. My child uh, has autism and there's certain like sensory things where mm-hmm. just going into a room that's echoey is a risk for them. Most people don't notice. Mm-hmm. But for them, that that's like a huge mm-hmm. Thing. So it might not be considered a risk for most people, but it is definitely a risk for them. Mm-hmm. And if it's something that they want to try out, they'll, they'll do it. Yeah. But, so it's just that thing of all kids take risks. It's just for some kids, being near a spider is the risk. Right. And yeah. for another kid, it's climbing a tree yes, 30 absolutely. feet or whatever. You know? So it's all going to change. And with my yeah. own child, they will climb up a tree 30 feet. Like they're, wow, okay. that's a risk they're yeah. okay with. And the funny thing is they're so, I don't want to say risk adverse. They're, they're so, uh, they check every branch like multiple times before putting their weight on it. <laughs> wow. You know? 
So it's just that funny thing of they'll climb really high. The height part doesn't bother me. In fact, I think part of it's the sensory thing. If it's really of quiet course. up there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they're totally willing to do that. But like assessing and knowing the surroundings, that's just smart cookies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but then the idea of like going like to the school dance, that's like they, mm-hmm. they go now. Mm-hmm. They didn't the first year or two. They start to go now, but they know they're not going to be in the room where there's the music. Mm-hmm. They just know that mm-hmm. they're going to be in the hallway. Or Self-awareness. Gonna... So they figure out what they can do. Mm-hmm. But so their their risk is actually going to this event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess ways. at the end of the day, it's all about like knowing the kid. Yeah. child, And if your child's the one who's not reading facial cues, unfortunately, what I see a lot of adults do is just like, oh, stop, you're always hurting kids. Well, that child has to learn how to interact with another child. Of course, you don't want to have them like wrestling like somebody who's half their size. Right. But like as a teacher, I always feel like, okay, that's someone I should wrestle with. And I give them cues. Mm -hmm. Oh, remember I said, don't grab my neck. You know, I might have to say it four times, but eventually he learns. And Mm -hmm. when he does it with someone else, the particular child I'm thinking of Mm -hmm. is he. But but I think it was important for him to learn that. Right. And I was okay with that. We had one uh, child who had a hard time with that. And we had her wrestle with like a doll, like a. It's a, it was a big doll, you okay. know, soft, but, you know, yeah. two and a half feet, three feet tall. And it worked so, out. And it was great. They did yeah. that for a while. And then they started doing this game with kids. I think it was called Pushdown. Okay. And so she put a chair in the middle of the floor, you know, so there weren't toys around, sat in the chair, and then she said, who wants to get pushed down? And then <laughs> the rest it. of the class lined up, and they sat in her lap, <laughs> and she pushed them off. And she did it over and over, and everyone thought it was great. And this is a child who yeah. six months earlier couldn't interact with kids because she'd hurt everybody. That's amazing. Right? And so we allowed her to find her way mm-hmm. to do it. And to and let then, her find her own way of like connecting with these other kids yeah. too. And then later I have a video of her like actually roughhousing where they're actually, you know, like wrestling yeah. with each other. I tend to use the word roughhousing instead of wrestling because I think it gets at it more. And yeah. there's too much like TV wrestling and like, yeah, and it's that's like, that's confusing. not what I'm talking about. It's a gray area there. <laughs> right. But, you know, she could roughhouse with kids. And I think it's important to also note that it's a great way when you have kids who don't speak the same language. Mm. Usually the way they start is they play chase. That's like mm-hmm. the first game. And you can play that. You could go to anywhere in the world and start playing chase. And mm-hmm. People would know the rules. But then if they roughhouse, if it's like a classroom with kids of different languages. I have yeah. a friend who's a special ed teacher in the St. Paul system, mm-hmm. early childhood special ed. And she said, like, it's great having the kids because it's like the one way – and I can't remember the particular child, which language he spoke, but he spoke a language that no one else did. Okay. So he had no one to play with when they're doing pretend play. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a really difficult, mm-hmm. it requires a lot of language, but he could roughhouse with kids. Or if it had some sort of physical component, so if they're playing dance class, he could move yeah. around too. But it was a way of him interacting right away as an equal. Right. I mean, you can do pretend play with someone who doesn't have mastery over the language that everyone's Absolutely. using. But the person without the language complexity yeah. has to take on a role that's, you know, lesser or, or, you know, and not as involved. Do you feel also with your years of teaching, do boys get a harder rap? Yeah. So this one, well, I think there's evidence. Mm-hmm. There's certainly studies that show in school-based pre-K programs mm-hmm. that boys are expelled from preschool three times as often as hmm. girls. The whole population. That's there's also a racial component mm, that mm-hmm. more like black boys are expelled at an even higher rate. And Walter Gilliam is mm-hmm. the one who did the research. He then did some follow up research where he had a video uh-huh. 
And it was four kids playing at a table with Play-Doh. And he then had teachers watch the video. And he said, there's this video of these kids. And there's one kid who has some behavior issues. And we just want you to watch to sort of figure out what you would do as a teacher. And of course, in the video, there none of the kids have a behavior issue. But it's a black boy, black girl, white boy, white girl, like sitting. Okay. And what they're actually doing is scanning the eyes of the person watching. And then he later reported back to everyone. So okay. they didn't know when they were watching it, but they did find out later. So the research was considered ethical. Sure, sure. But he found that the black boy was watched way more than everyone else. And it didn't matter what the race of the teacher was. Really? That teachers of all races watched the black boy the most. Interesting. And when he interviewed the teachers or the other researchers that interviewed them, most people reported that they did watch the boys more than the girls. So they knew that there's, you know, behavior issues are more often a boy thing. Mm. But then the racial part, that even like was... very few people brought it up, but that became an, an issue too. So I think what I think is happening from that is one, there's a societal, you know, an implicit bias that we have about who, you know, who goes to jail. And our prison populations are mm-hmm. mostly people of color, mm-hmm. mostly black. I mean, not mostly in terms of percentages, but in terms of the population in general mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. prison populations. The chance of going is more. Mm-hmm. And poor white people. We have this bias. But then we kind of set up our society to allow pe- for to have allow, that happen, yeah, right? right. Uh, so what I think happens is we have classrooms where, you know, you have to have books in a classroom. You could not have an early childhood classroom without books. Right. Um, I don't think any state in the country would have licensed a classroom like that. But there's nothing about how much roughhousing happens mm-hmm. or how much uh, storytelling. Mm-hmm. So storytelling is a lot more physical. You can have kids move around while they're telling stories. There's nothing that says you need a certain amount of storytelling. Hmm. I know in Minnesota, there's nothing about, there is definitely that you need a gym space or some indoor place to go to once. Right, right. You know, a day, whatever, or yeah. outside. Yes, but in a classroom, there's no requirements for having a... Like a tumble corner. A tumble corner, yeah. Like, okay. Exactly. I didn't and, know that. And it's just, I mean, that's the bias, right? Of yeah. like what kids need. Yeah. Because people say, well, kids need to learn to read, right? They need to learn to um, share with others. Mm-hmm. They learn need to try building and, mm-hmm. you know, do art. You know, and all those things are great. They are what children need. Mm-hmm. But the idea that children don't need to move physically... And mm-hmm. that it shouldn't be running in the classroom. Right. Where does that idea come from? Because, you know, when you think about the history of humanity, yeah. there's never a time when, like, oh, kids can't run. Right. Like, we're going to gonna have them there for six hours. And, like, you know, 30 minutes a day, we'll let them run. And then yeah. they have to, like, sit. Yeah. Or, or be in this, like, <laughs> confined space. And it is confining for It is absolutely kids. confined. So it's sort of like building into so the kids who need to move the most are going to get in trouble the most. Yeah. And the fact that we consider that getting into trouble too, right? Right. We've already, we've labeled them. Like those are like, you're getting into trouble. You're the troublemakers. You're always, you can't sit still. Like that's a bad thing. Right. And And the tendency is that boys move more than girls. Mm -hmm. But one thing I find interesting, and I know I was, this happened to me as a teacher, where I'd go to read a book and kids would sit down and kids who need to move the most, and it was usually boys, would go to the back. Mm. Right. And it's great because they could like be sitting, you know, sitting with their legs crossed, and then, like, they could just flop back. Mm-hmm. Or there'd be room to flop to the side or kick their legs out. And they weren't bothering anybody. But as a teacher who's reading the book, I thought, stop moving around, pay attention to the book. Right? We have this idea that sitting still is the same as paying attention. Yes. And we know that's not true. We know as adults, we would never sit still 
and think that we're paying attention. Yeah. Adults are constantly moving their foot, tapping mm-hmm. their foot, you know, just mm-hmm. recording this podcast. We have to be careful not to move too much and right. make noise with the microphone. Right. So it's it's a little unnatural. And yeah. I'm moving my hands the whole time as we do this, but up in the air. Uh, so... We and, know that, like, yeah. as adults, we don't do that. And we defend ourselves. Oh, like, yeah. I always tell my kids, like, I can do a thousand things and still listen to you. Right. I can move around. I can do, like, yeah, all yeah. of this. I'm still listening to you. Right. Yeah. And so, but for some reason, as adults, especially teachers, we would, well, if you're moving around, you're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. And it's really not true. I mean, yeah. there's certainly kids could be doing something else right. and not paying attention to your book. Sure. But they could be sitting still and not paying attention to you, too. Right. And <laughs> So you have to decide if that's important. Yeah. But as a teacher, when I first started teaching, what I would do to those kids is say, why don't you come sit up closer to me? Mm. Now there's less room and they're going to flop into somebody and then they're going to get into trouble for hitting yeah. another kid. So part of it's about body awareness, what you know sometimes referred to as proprioception. So in mm-hmm. the occupational therapy world, that awareness of your body, some kids need to have more space yeah. and they're getting to know their body. Um, and especially with young children, if there's like this little space between two kids, not every four-year-old is going to know they can't fit in that yeah. space. And they'll try sitting down <laughs> and they'll sit on someone instead. And the teacher's going to get like, you're hurting them or, right. you know, and again, take it as there's this um, assumption that someone's doing something on purpose. And I do think there's an implicit bias that if a girl did it, I think a teacher is less likely to think that it was done on purpose and it was more of an accident. Absolutely. And if sure. it was a boy doing it, it was done on purpose, mm-hmm. especially if it was a black boy. Yeah. There's going to be this, this assumption so that you did on purpose. So I think you can't get rid of implicit bias in yourself, right. but you can be aware of yes. it. So if you feel that you're going to blame a child, stop and ask mm-hmm. yourself, do I know that this is true? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. even if, if I'm even 1% not sure, what could I do instead? You know, like, and yeah. you're never going to be totally sure. So instead right. you could say, oh, what happened? Mm-hmm. And the kids, oh, I was trying to sit here. Yeah. It's like, oh, looks like there wasn't enough space. Right. You know, like why yes. blame them for something they didn't do? And then meanwhile, I think the kids who get blamed all the time start to assume either they're a bad kid or or they resent getting blamed. And either way. And it, trust. They stop. Tr- like, yeah. There's a trust issue there as well. I think. So then sometimes. school isn't a place where they're seen. Or safe. Or safe, and it just yeah. creates this other way to go, this other route. So, yeah, so I do think boys get a bad rap in general, to answer your question sure. 40 minutes ago or whatever. <laughs> but you uh, answered it. But I find it interesting because, yes, boys get expelled more in pre-K programs, and they get in trouble for this type of stuff, I think, throughout school. But then I look at college graduation rates and income levels when you compare genders. And it's just interesting because it's not like men are, you know, like hurting in this sure. society. And so I don't know what to make of that. Sure. I mean, they're not, they're, they're related in some way. Mm-hmm. What I would say is that I think by allowing for rough and tumble play, one, there, is, there are studies that show that kids who roughhouse are more pro-social mm-hmm. later in life. They mm-hmm. learn how to interact with people. And I think in general, if we can show children who are boisterous that we trust them with their bodies but we will be there when they don't show respect to others. But mm-hmm. we need to respect their body too. And mm-hmm. I think what happens is we too often don't respect their needs, phys- mm-hmm. their physical needs. Mm-hmm. If they need to re- move around more, mm-hmm. I always tell a teacher when let him have more space, yeah. you know, it's circle time. And they're like, well, the other kids don't have that much space. And I think, so if a child came in with a wheelchair, would they be allowed to have more space because the wheelchair is bigger? 
Well, of course, because that's something that child needs. They can't help it. And I think, okay, so let's assume this child needs to move a lot mm -hmm. because for the last hundred days, you've told me that they keep moving and bumping into people. So let's assume that's a need because they have demonstrated every single day. Mm -hmm. that this that's is a need. Mike, this is so fascinating. I feel like this is like the best part of doing this podcast is not only learning stuff that I didn't necessarily know before, but also to just have this awareness now, like going into parenting or sharing this with other people and also right. recognizing this in this world of education. So people can find the podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, yeah. um, and it is called... Teaching, Teaching with the Body and Mind. Teaching yep. with the Body and in can, Mind. Yes. And you can also look on Facebook. We have a group called Teaching with the Body and Mind. And I'll link it on our website Great. too for you guys. Yeah. And from there you can click the links. Usually I think it's the iTunes link it takes you to. Okay. But. Thank you. And you can check out uh, Mike's books too on Amazon and through Redleaf. Yeah. So redleafpress.org. Okay. We'll have the books too. Thank you, Dara. It was so good to talk to you. Yeah, it was great talking to you. If you are curious and want to know more about the benefits of rough and tumble play, you can purchase Mike's book from Amazon or Redleaf Press. We will have links on our website, which is www.parent-town.com. Like us and share the podcast on Facebook with your community. We really appreciate that. You can subscribe, listen, and comment to Parent Town where you listen to all your podcasts. If you have an idea for a show, we would love to hear from you. Thank you to Greg Ward at Studio Arcade and to Park States for our theme music. Again, thanks for listening. I'm Heidi. And this is Parent Town.